Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Well, welcome again uh, to all of our listeners and viewers uh, to, uh, again for another in our series of interviews with the experts. I'm delighted again to uh, welcome uh, Dr. Juan Crestinello, our Chief of Cardiovascular Surgery, who has actually been a frequent guest on our program and uh, is here today to, to talk about uh, mitral annular calcification. So uh, again, uh, welcome, Juan. It's really good to have you back with us. Thank you, Mark. I'm delighted to be here again. So mitral annular calcification, we're just going to call that MAC uh, for the uh, purposes of this uh, discussion. Uh, how prevalent uh, is that? Uh, I know we see this on echocardiograms, uh, chest X-rays. Uh, what actually is the prevalence uh, and, and what's it associated? Why what, what does it interest the surgeon? So mitral annular calcification is, as its name says, is the calcification of the of the mitral valve annulus. And that uh, occurs in about uh, 25% of all echocardiograms that uh, were performed at, at the Mayo Clinic uh, over the course of uh, a study that involved approximately 24,000 patients. And I think that that's the, the echocardiograms that just were performed over the course of a year. And what is important to know is that the patients with uh, mitral annular calcification are Number one, a high-risk group with a, a high prevalence of comorbidities. And number two, the prevalence of mitral valve disease in those patients is increased. But also it's important to know that not all patients who have mitral annular calcification have a disease of the mitral valve in, in the sense that the function of the mitral valve is preserved. There's no stenosis and there's no regurgitation. So mitral annular calcification by itself is not an indication to perform any procedures in the absence of a dysfunction of the valve. Well, that's an excellent point. So uh, I've uh, no interest to the surgeon uh, for, for the time being. So we're going to focus then on those patients who have uh, concomitant mitral valve disease. And you already talked about some of the uh, characteristics of these patients. What other risk factors might they have that they have associated MAC with their mitral valve disease? There, there's two aspects. One is the in terms of the comorbidities that those patients have in terms that they're older, more often females, they have a risk factors for atherosclerosis and a vascular disease. They also have left ventricular a hypertrophy, and normally they have very small left ventricles that can be challenging from the standpoint of the creation of LVOT obstruction during mitral valve replacement. And in terms of the surgery itself, because of these characteristics, the surgeries are, are, are more demanding and they're associated with procedure-specific uh, complications such as AV disruption, which is the most complication of this surgery, risk of coronary compromise, a peripheral leak, a AV block, a stroke, and renal failure, and obviously an increased rate of uh, operative mortality. So just taking a step back, though, the, the patients though, with MAC, with mitral valve disease, have a worse prognosis than those patients who have mitral valve disease without MAC. Is that a fair statement? Correct. You, you've already talked about some of the risks of the surgery uh, in patients with, with MAC. Could you maybe just describe uh, how you as a surgeon then deal with MAC at, at the time of surgery? Uh, and again, we're talking about patients with mitral valve disease, so you're also dealing with that. But what are the surgical techniques that uh, you have at your disposal to, to deal with MAC? 
Yeah, I, I just want to go a step backwards and, and make a point of what you said, that the patients with MAC and mitral valve disease have a, a worse prognosis than those patients with mitral valve disease without MAC. But it's important that to know that in spite of the increased risk of the treatment, patients with surgical treatment or transcatheter treatment of mitral valve disease in the presence of MAC, they do better than patients who are treated with uh, just medical management. So it's important to recognize that treating of the mitral valve disease in patients with MAC provide benefit of those patients in spite of the increased risk. So in terms of the specific uh, techniques that we use, uh, in, at our institution, we use a conservative approach for these patients who have mitral annular calcification, which we just debris enough of the annulus in order to be able to place a adequate uh, size prosthesis. And then we place uh, stitches either through the valve leaflets, uh, through the calcium or around the calcium. And, and that, uh, in general, in our practice, allow us to sit an adequate uh, size uh, prosthesis and uh, restore the, either the competency of the valve or relieve the mitral stenosis. One, in a patient who has MAC and has maybe not severe mitral valve disease, but you know, some significant disease, let's just say moderate mitral valve regurgitation or particularly uh, stenosis. So there's a gradient there, but it's not terribly severe. Is your threshold then for timing of surgery uh, altered by presence of MAC? Is this a patient that you might want to intervene on that mitral valve sooner rather than later? And again, you're predominantly related to uh, mitral valve obstruction. Well, it's, it is important to confirm that there really patients with moderate degree of um, stenosis, they, they do have a mitral stenosis. So most of these patients have significant left ventricular diastolic dysfunction as well as a left atrial non-compliance. So the gradients across a mitral valve by echocardiogram can be falsely elevated and could be the result of the left atrial non-compliance and the, and the LV diastolic dysfunction. And as a consequence of that, and given the, it's important to invasive a hemodynamic evaluation of the degree of mitral stenosis in order to confirm that the patients do really have mitral stenosis and they will benefit from a treatment because otherwise it's not uncommon that the pressures in the left atrial chamber will not decrease after a replacement of the, uh, of the mitral valve. So it's essential that we uh, verify that the echocardiogram findings are accurate by doing invasive hemodynamic assessment. Okay, so that's, that's, a, that's a good point. What, what's the operative mortality in these patients? Well, the, the operative mortality is elevated. However, in our practice, the operative mortality is low. It's around uh, 1% with a, a low rate of AV groove disruption, as well as a, a low rate of perivalvular leak, as well as pacemaker uh, requirement, which are the, the most common complications associated with surgery in patients with mitral calcification. And when in a patient that uh, you might consider to be too high risk for surgery, um, maybe related to uh, other comorbidities, what other options would we have for, for treating those patients? There are other surgical options and there are transcatheter uh, procedures. In terms of the surgical options, there is a, on those patients who have such a significant amount of calcium in the, in the annulus, 
that prevents the uh, safely placement of the stitches. Now we're using a modified transcatheter valves where we place directly on cardiopulmonary bypass through a left atriotomy on the mitral valve annulus. And the advantage of this approach is that it minimizes the number of stitches that needs to be placed uh, through the calcify annulus and also allow us to resect the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve or even perform a myectomy, decreasing the chances of uh, producing LVOT obstruction during the procedure. So this is one option. The other option for those patients who are truly inoperable, they are a transcatheter procedures where also a transcatheter aortic valve is placed in the mitral annulus through a completely transcatheter approach through a transeptal approach. That's a, a, a good approach for patients who are truly inoperable and there are very high risk for surgery. They, this procedure is less invasive. It's associated with a faster recovery time, uh, which uh, all less invasive procedures has. But however, they have procedure-specific complications where the risk of LDOT obstruction and perivalvular leak and the risk of embolization for the prosthesis. But in our institution, thanks to Dr. Herrero and her team, we had a, a experience with this type of a, procedures and, and planning for these procedures is essential by, by doing a CAT scan and evaluating the, all these risks, the risk of embolization, the risk of LDOT obstruction, and using measures to mitigate those complications before the procedure. And obviously in, in those procedures, there's no like decalcification, there's no removal of calcium, correct? Correct. There's no, there's, the calcium is left in place and um, we, it is important to evaluate how much calcium it is because that's a essential to anchor the valve and, and Dr. Guerrero had developed a calcium score based on a quantification of the circumferential extension of the calcium and the involvement of the trigons of the mitral valve and the thickness of the calcium that is associated with less risk of embolization of the prosthesis. So the more calcium you have, the higher the calcium score, the lower the risk of embolization of the tower prosthesis on the, on the mitral valve. It is also important to uh, evaluate the risk of left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. And uh, that's also done by uh, CT before the procedure. And in those patients who are at high risk, uh, mitigating maneuvers can be done uh, in preparation for the TMBR. And those include doing an alcohol septal ablation or laceration of the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve during the procedure. Yeah, so obviously the, the, the role of imaging, whether it's echo, but particularly CT is really critical for these patients, isn't it? And uh, who would have known that there's yet another calcium score that we're, we're going to learn about. So may, maybe in conclusion here, actually, maybe before we conclude, is there any medical treatment for, for these patients? I mean, is there any way that one can slow down the uh, deposition uh, or the formation of calcium in these patients? I think that there's many um, potential uh, candidates to decrease the accumulation of calcium in this in uh, in these patients. However, from the practical standpoint, for a patient who already had mitral annual calcification, there's really no effective uh, treatment that can be performed with medicines to remove calcium in a in a reasonable period of time 
uh, and improve the function of the of the of the valve. And of these patients, then in, in your practice uh, here, I mean, how many uh, surgical procedures uh, you and your colleagues doing in, in a year in, in patients with, with MAC and, and mitral valve disease? I would say like fifty to seventy-five patients a year. And if you found that number increasing in recent years? Yes, because the uh, patients are getting older, and the and the prevalence of hypertension, left ventricular hypertrophy. The risk factors that leads to mitral calcifications are also increasing. So we're seeing more patients. And the other, the other particular category is uh, radiation heart disease, and those patients have right. MAC very commonly. And I, th- I think we. Be talking about that in another uh, you know, session, but I, I was going to ask you about that. Well, one, thank you again so much. Uh, it's really great having you join us. Uh, the uh, the information that you share and, and your experience and your ability just to summarize these very complicated surgical diseases and how to how to manage these patients and talking about the risks and the uh, the other treatment options is really very very helpful. So thank you so much uh, for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.